0: Morning. I am one of the lay pastors on the team here. And um, before the message, I just want to dismiss the youth. The youth can go with Godfrey. He's in the back. Uh, Find Godfrey in the back and and go off with him. Awesome. Okay, so before we get into the message, I just want to do one more plug for the Color Vault Live show. Like Alicia said, October 11th, Bowery Electric, ALF, and Alex, and Eric Marshall, all wonderful men of God who've been leading worship at LMCC, and we've been channeling their gifts for songwriting and writing prayerful music to God into recording and releasing to be heard. So get tickets. There are QR codes by the front desk. When you scan the QR code and get that link, text it to five friends and invite people to join the show. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be... um, So this morning, we are continuing in our eight-week series in the Book of Romans, This coincides with a reading plan and community groups, which kicked off in the last couple of weeks. Um, Romans is often referred to as, and it's packed, really densely packed with theology and insights and just deep richness. And so it's really impossible to tackle all of it in eight 30-minute sermons from the reading and from community groups, because Sundays will only be able to just scratch the surface if... Romans is a meal, consider Sundays the appetizer, and community groups, that's the space to dig deeper, to ask questions to really deepen our understanding of the gospel. So just to recap where we've been so far, two weeks ago, Phil preached from Romans 1 through 3, and we saw that regardless of where we come from, regardless of how good we think we are, and holy and just, he can't tolerate rebellion and imperfection, and that the consequence of our imperfection and rebellion is wrath, way for us to be made right with him through Jesus. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, substituted himself in our place as a perfect sacrifice, took on that wrath and condemnation in relationship with him as his sons and daughters. And then last week, Alicia preached from Romans 4 and 5, and we saw that faith, believing in what Jesus did on the- to righteousness— That, as Alicia put it, we can look at the balance sheet of our lives, the assets and liabilities, and when we place our faith faith in Christ, he wipes out the liabilities section and replaces it with him. And so this week we come to Romans 6 and 7, and in the arc of Romans, chapters 6 and 7 are the turning point that lead directly into what I think of the pinnacle of Romans. We'll see that the victorious life we have available in Christ is filled with power and glory of Romans 6 and 7. And so having explained that left to our own devices, we're destined for separation, having explained that God is merciful and has provided a way for us to be made right with Jesus, having explained that all we have to do is for how our lives ought to look going forward. And the question can be summed up in two words, now what? Having placed my faith in Jesus, now what? By if I, the way I used to, or am I supposed to be different? Now what? Now there are two groups of people who might be asking this now what question, and Romans 6 addresses the people, which I'll call the rule followers. And we'll spend this morning unpacking the answer to that now what question in two sections. First, for the rebels, and second, for the rule followers. Before we get into those two sections, I think we should either be a rebel or a rule follower i more naturally the kind of person to distrust authority, to go my own way, to want to be free of obligations and structure and rules, to get upset when other people don't, don't respect the rules. These, of course, are the rule followers. Me I'm more naturally a rebel, I chafe at rules and structure and authority, I like to do the answer to the question of now what is fundamentally the same for both groups. But the implications are a little bit different depending on which category we naturally find ourselves in. And so you might find that the first or the second section of the message really are rebels. In Romans 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No one ever says it exactly like this. Most people don't come out and say explicitly, you know, I'm going to go on deliberately living a life of selfishness, or I'm going to go on deliberately living a life of deceitfulness and lying. I'm going to that God's grace may abound through Jesus. That'd be ridiculous, but instead, it comes off as a bit of a laissez-faire attitude toward our broken ways for that. This lying, this deceitfulness isn't so great, but hey, there's grace for that. This money obsession, ego obsession, pleasure obsession isn't so great, but at least there's grace for that. And I'm so glad Paul phrased, hey, there's grace for that approach, is that it's quite all right to keep on sinning because more sin means more grace. And there is something you, in brokenness. There are four reasons why. The first reason is that when we placed our faith in Jesus, the old sinful, broken version of ourself died. In verse six, it says, "If we're continuing in our brokenness after placing our faith in Christ, something is seriously wrong." While righteousness has been fully secured, our faith has no worries. It's okay. There's grace for that. Rather than let that old, sinful, broken version of ourselves be done away with and destroyed, when we take the approach of no worries, it's subjected us to God's wrath and all the havoc and pain in our lives, we allow that version of ourselves to have life again, to wreak havoc in our lives again. Jesus died to sin once and for all. Likewise, you reckon yourselves dead to sin. We shouldn't give. A dead version of ourselves, oxygen, by having this blas. It's all right. There's grace for that. Instead, we ought to say, "This version of me was crucified with Christ, and I'm done giving life to what's dead and destroyed." Giving it life. The second reason we shouldn't continue in sin and brokenness is that when we place our faith in Christ, and the old version of ourselves dies, resurrected with the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. And so when we choose to trust in Christ, he doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven. I'm granting you my righteousness so you can have a relationship with me and the Father. He does say that, but he also now what? This is the crux of the answer. We are to live by our new nature. This is echoed throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, created after the, liken, what? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, we have a new nature a new and vastly improved version of ourselves, capable of actually, but we have to put it on. It's not automatic. The old version of ourselves wants to spring into life, it wants oxygen, and we get to to decide which version of brokenness. We're going to put on our new nature and live as the resurrected sons and daughters of God that we are. That's the second reason we shouldn't go on continuing in brokenness. We have a new nature. Sin and brokenness is that we become controlled by whichever nature we choose to follow. In chapter 6, verse 16, it says, Do you not, death or of obedience leading to righteousness? The thing about rebels is we desire complete autonomy to do what we like, when we like, how we like. We think of ourselves as free agents. And in that way, the gospel is appealing in the idea of complete autonomy for human beings is a myth, it's a lie. And the enemy likes us to particularly believe this lie because then we think we're in control. And out last week, our wiring as human beings demands an object of obedience, something or someone as our ultimate master. And there are really only two choices, God and sin. Oftentimes we think we're in control. We think we can stop at any time because we're the ones in control. We've got this. The reality is the more we control we actually have, the more we choose to live selfishly, the more we choose to chase idols, the more we choose to do the things we know we shouldn't be doing, the more power and control we give those things over our lives, and the harder it is to stop doing always separation, always emptiness. But if we choose God as our master, we choose to seek him and his righteousness, we choose to give him control, we get God as our master leading to life or sin. Leading to death, which leads to the final reason we shouldn't continue in brokenness and sin. Christian circles, it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The reason we shouldn't continue in sin is that the wages of sin is death. The compensation for sin. Word death for a minute. Let's continue in the morbidity. Sometimes we think a little too narrowly that death just means when we stop breathing and our hearts stop beating. Or maybe we think of it far more expansively than this. To illustrate this, we can go back to Genesis, where God says to Adam and Eve, in that day, if they ate and their eyes were opened, they saw that they were naked, all the curses came into the world, sin entered the world, pain entered the world, but it took them a while to stop breathing and for their hearts to stop beating. The Bible says Adam lived for hundreds of years after this. Yeah, he did. He did. That day, marriage became hard. Intimacy became hard. Work became hard. Shame entered the world. Blame entered the world. Pain entered the world. And compared to the wages of life that God didn't intend for us. So when it says the wages of sin is death, it doesn't just mean we stop breathing. It doesn't just mean our hearts stop beating. It doesn't just mean he intended for us and taking on all the bad things God never intended for us. Yes, when we choose to trust Christ, we can lean on his grace, for relationship with God, and for eternal life. And that's huge. That is the best gift have ever. Less pain, less chaos, less of the awful things that God didn't intend for us. The wages of sin is still death in this life. The consequence of sin is still in broken relationships and pain. The result of living a life of lies is death in the form of alienation and distrust and not being one's true self. The result of chasing idols like money and power or emptiness. The wages of sin is death. Do we want death or do we want life? So that's what Romans says to those of us, saying, can we keep on living in brokenness? Certainly not. Because we died to sin, we've been given a new nature, we want God to be our master rather than sin. Because the wages of sin is death. So once we realize that the grace of the gospel doesn't permit us to continue in brokenness, the other approach some our righteousness by following God's law, by doing, God's, by doing good deeds through our actions. And the key phrase here is trying to earn. Striving to earn righteousness. For appreciate God's grace is a nice kind of insurance policy, but let's be real here. I've got to do my best to earn my righteousness on my own, so I'll take it from here and get right with God on my own. Again, most people don't come out and explicitly say, I got this. I'm earning righteousness by my actions. But our posture betrays us. Our self-righteousness betrays us when we look down on others that we think. The tax collector going to the temple to pray illustrates this beautifully. The Pharisee prays, God, thank you. Thank you those robbers, even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus says that Pharisee is not approved by God because he was trying to exalt himself, try to exalt ourselves, when we try to justify ourselves by our actions, when we try to impress God through our effort. And Romans 7 makes clear that the posture of truth is a complete non-starter. And there are three reasons why. First is what we saw last week in Romans 4. Righteousness has never been based on anyone's efforts. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not Abraham was circumcised. Not Abraham followed God's law. The law didn't even exist then. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith, its right, always... You know, last week, Alicia cited that verse in Hebrews 11, classic faith verse. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I love the testimony, or in other translations, by this faith, our ancestors were approved. By faith they were approved. Not by keeping the law, not by their actions, by faith. And if we look at the example, we knew two different kings, that his wife was his sister so they would feel free to sleep with her and not kill him. Look at Jacob. Jacob conned everyone in his life by conned faith. Rahab, a prostitute, David, an adulterer, all people with major flaws, really imperfect lives, yet justified by faith. They didn't earn God's, they could do so much good that God would then owe them righteousness. God doesn't owe anyone righteousness. He just gives it freely, credited, freely given by God based on faith. The second reason it's a non-starter to try to earn righteousness is that trying to earn our righteousness results only in condemnation. When it comes to righteousness, we can either the game of faith and grace where god just gives us righteousness to those who have faith in jesus or we can play the game of games we don't get to switch based on whatever suits us best we have to choose which paradigm we want to play under if we choose the game of law and effort where we have to earn our righteousness based on our actions if we choose that game no human being has ever been justified by works and some of us may think our actions justify us but jesus reveals God's true standards in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you the truth, anyone who's angry with their brother or sister is subject to judgment. He goes on to say, you've heard it say, you've heard the law says, don't commit adultery. I tell you the truth: whoever looks lustfully is, or is perfect. It's not only about our actions, it's about our hearts. And Jesus says, those of us who are angry are just as guilty as those who commit horrible acts of violence, having full-blown affairs. He says, be perfect. If you want to try to earn righteousness, perfection is the standard. Not just perfect actions, but perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but... And in that sentence with something to signify why we're probably all right with God. And God says, no, 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 no. There is no but. If you're trying to earn righteousness results only in condemnation and failure, the only winning option is the paradigm of grace and faith. We don't earn it, we just receive it by faith. God is that we died to the law. Just like the old version of ourselves that wants to rebel is dead, the old version of ourselves that wants to play the game of law, of law and effort of earning righteousness by our actions has been destroyed and replaced by the paradigm of Grace. So those of us playing cannot and will not result in the righteousness that we're after. Just like it makes no sense to give oxygen to that dead and sinful version of ourselves, it really makes no sense giving oxygen to that old paradigm that results in effort. He granted us righteousness so we don't have to earn it. If we choose to resurrect the paradigm of law and effort, if we choose, as Paul says, failure, we shouldn't render meaningless Christ's death in our lives by resurrecting the paradigm of earning right standing by our own efforts. So that's why it doesn't work to earn our right to nation in failure. And finally, we died to the law, so the paradigm, the very paradigm of earning righteousness through our actions has been destroyed. So now what? We shouldn't go on sinning and living in brokenness, brokenness, reasons why we shouldn't try to earn righteousness. What should we be doing? And I'm going to have to leave us with a bit of a cliffhanger here because the pinnacle of Romans, the summit of the glorious and victorious life we have in Christ by the power of the Spirit. But to tide us over, we get some helpful hints from the law, having died to what we were held by so that, we dis- that, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit. And in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death... Galatians 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me we serve in the newness crucified with Christ it is no longer we who live but Christ who lives in us for all of us the answer to that question of now what is to surrender control of our lives to yield our lives to govern our lives rather than ourselves how do we do that We make Christ the primary influence in our lives by immersing ourselves in prayer and every aspect of our lives to him, every aspect. Not just the ones we know are bad, but the ones we think are good too. I'll share what this looked like for me. A few years ago, I asked God to see things as features in my programming rather than the bugs that they really were. For example, my skepticism of of authority, my tendency to be a rebel, not a check, Again, it's not standing up for myself, but insecurity and fear of inadequacy. Lack of discipline is not a flexibility that allows me to go with the flow, but a body to be delivered from. I sought out scripture to see what God said about each of these things and asked him to change me. And he started to. A few of them I'm completely... So much so that I can say, Oh, wretched man that I was... Who has been delivering me from that body of death? Not me. Delivered and transformed through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're just so grateful for the gift of Jesus. You just give to us. Eve and you credit us with righteousness. You bring us into relationship with you. And so we just pray to be completely yielded to you, to be completely subjected to you, to just follow you and seek after you. We know we need your power in us to do it. So we ask you to work in us, to transform us, to make us more like you.